0: Hey there. Well, you've made it to Episode 8 of Tales from the Subterranean Playground, brought to you, as always, by Immersify Recording Services, LLC. I'm your host, Mark Allen J. Today we'll listen in on a session that I recorded back in late May. My featured guests know a thing or two about guitar, both electric in its various forms and acoustic. Also, we will have the opportunity to hear two guitars, both built by Dr. Mark French. Dr. French is a professor at Purdue University's School of Engineering Technology. He also happens to be a luthier, that is, one who builds stringed instruments. He's published three books on acoustic guitars. For 11 years, he was also part of a program sponsored by the National Science Foundation known as the STEM Guitar Project. This was a program that taught community college and high school instructors how to build guitars so that they too could instruct their students in how to build their own guitars and in the process expose the students to STEM curriculum. You might recall that's science, technology, engineering, and math. He's also a professor to the engineering class at Purdue known as Stringed Instrument Design and Manufacture. It's colloquially known as the Guitar Lab. He also has his own YouTube channel where he deals with a variety of engineering topics, including overseeing his students' construction of a hypersonic ping-pong ball cannon, which once made an appearance on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. But that's a whole other story. Michael Harrington hails from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and has been playing guitar professionally since the age of 19. In 2016, he graduated from Eastern Michigan University, having studied classical guitar, as well as exploring pop and jazz music in his spare time while completing his undergraduate degree there. As a result of an independent study elected during his senior year, He also published an article on the great jazz guitarist Django Reinhardt in Just Jazz Guitar magazine. Currently, he primarily freelances in the southeast Michigan area, performing on six-string guitar as well as pedal steel guitar. He has worked with artists such as Mark Jewett, Rachel Brook, Libby DeCamp, Linen Ray, Bovine, Adam Plomeritis, Royal Garden Trio, fun on the frets, and others. He's also worked as theater musician for various theatrical performances in Michigan and elsewhere. He also provides private teaching lessons to his guitar students. Mike was kind enough to agree to act as session musician, if you will, for the podcast, and play the two guitars brought by Dr. French. In part two of the podcast, you'll also hear Mike explain some of the origins, but also workings, of pedal steel guitar. All right, let's just get to the podcast. Here we go. You guys are in for a treat, because I've got two of my favorite people on the planet. We had this scheduled once. We had an ice storm that came along and had to cancel right at the last minute, but my guests today are Dr. Mark French. Do you, should I call you, doctor, or should I just call you uh, Mark? Mark is just fine. My mother calls me Mark. It's That's just fine. And of course, Mike Harrington, half of <laughs> what I colloquially refer to as TBH, the Brothers Harrington. Mike, being the guitar player that he is, was a natural for this particular episode of the podcast. We're lucky that we've got both these gentlemen here today. Certainly, there's an interesting connection between Mark and I, and that is Mark was actually once upon a time, long time my ago, my boss. Yep, long time ago for
1: two, three years I yeah, think, as I was. recall. Is that
0: right? Yeah, it was. It was '97 that I came to Lear, yeah, and I was gone by the end of '99. '99, I, I think, is when yeah, you bounced right. to yeah. Uh, Bosch. Bosch. Yeah, yeah. So, I'll just say it now: Mark was a terrific boss. Well, thank you. I had and no I idea say that what I was earnest. doing. <laughs> I'm, I'm not just blowing smoke. I mean It doesn't matter now. No, I just no it doesn't. But but I, I do have fond memories of that because I came from uh, very much an applied practical point of view and I can remember having discussions with you about certain signal processing or test matters where you and I would be coming at this problem from essentially very different mm-hmm. angles. Yeah. So it was very beneficial. I really enjoyed that because I got to see like how someone who thinks, or has much greater abstract thought capability than I ever had—you think I'm the abstract? One? Oh yeah, oh gosh, oh yeah. Well, I think you that's are. That's funny because I thought you were. Oh no 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 no. Oh wow okay. Oh no 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 no. I can remember you feeling oh, I always pages. thought you were the nerd. No no. Well we're both nerds aren't yeah, we? I suppose yeah. I think Guilty you're, as charged. you're being yeah. fair and honest, but. But the, the thing that I wanted to talk about today, obviously we're here to talk about guitars, but the road to guitars is paved with a completely different path for you. I want to start out by talking about your education. And it's funny because your training is in a field of study both of us are very much taken with, which is to say flight, yeah. aeronautical engineering, yeah. etc. You hold a BS, an MS, and a PhD, all in aerospace, uh-huh. and with that, you ended up going to Wright Pat.
1: You yes. were
0: there. Was that direct out of grad school? Did you go there directly?
1: Pretty much. I had kind of an unfortunate cul-de-sac between graduation and starting at Wright Pat, but I, I eventually wound up there in I don't know late '85, I guess. <laughs> Is
0: there some sort of mix up with
1: the petty cash. In you? <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> I had. I had. Uh, at one point thought I wanted to join the Air Force and went to officer training school and that just didn't work out well at all. And the the Air Force did the right thing by turfing me out and I needed a job. And I had, uh, it turns out, three choices. And I took the one at wright Pat, and I worked for what was then called the Flight Dynamics Lab. The Air Force Lab, at least at the time, was renaming itself every couple of years just to make sure they didn't get any of that icky brand equity. um i'm not sure why they did it but the time was called flight dynamics lab and it went through a couple other incarnations while i was there and i it's probably named something else now but i was in what was then called the aeroelasticity group in the analysis and optimization branch i did i did basically uh wow how do i boil this down um air, Elast- air elasticity analysis and structural optimization for i don't know five years probably and I finally decided if I don't get away from this computer terminal, I'm just going to go mental. Mm. I got to do something real. I mean, it's a great job, but it's it's not the right one for me. And so I found out there was an optics lab in my building. And the, I found out later the reason it was there is the optics table was too big to move. They'd moved out of all the other labs out, but they couldn't get rid of that one. So <laughs> I started hanging around the lab and kind of annoying the guy who ran it. And after a while, he, I, he finally just relented and let, started working with me. And so I, I transferred to that. And so I was a laser metrology test guy for about three or four years. Is
0: this where you started doing uh, or got familiar with interferometry? Is that yeah. was in, it was in that era? Yeah, yeah. Because I remember having some discussions with you. Anyway, I digress. We were having some conversation about those patterns. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm probably the
1: youngest guy you'll ever meet who ever did wet plate holography. We had four by five inch glass plates with the the photosensitive emulsion on yeah. them, and for those of us old enough to remember film, the lower the ASA number, mm-hmm. essentially the better resolution you yeah. got. So I asked lower one, grain, yeah, and so the ASA number on these plates was you know like you went and bought film, fast film was four hundred mm-hmm. and yeah, I don't remember the numbers much. 100, yeah. 100 ASA is hundred was common.
0: Okay, Kodachrome was sixty four, but that was slide.
1: Oh, okay. Well, the ASA number on these slides was, like, two. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, so it was, you know, the whole room became our, our camera, We the back room with this table. And so I would set up interferometers, and in uh, it was called double exposure image plane holography was what I was doing. And we had this really cool lens we'd gotten out of a, uh, a reconnaissance camera. And apparently, if you're building reconnaissance cameras, you don't care what anything costs. Right. So this was a really nice lens. It was huge. It was like a... Dirty, there is no budget. There is no budget. It had thorium coating on it. Wow. Um, yeah. And we could never get rid of it because somebody with a Geiger counter had noticed it was very slightly radioactive. But they didn't know what the gain on the Geiger counter was. And so they, they marked it as being radioactive. And so it's when the earth spins into the sun, that lens is still going to be in that cabinet because nobody can get rid of it. <laughs> right. But, yeah, so, I, like, one day I was back there trying to figure out how to put the plate in the plate holder. And I figured, well, the emulsion must go on towards the light. And so I yelled out to my, he wasn't really my boss, but he was my boss. I would have done anything he asked. His name was Gene. Great guy. Hmm. Um, and I said, you know, the emulsion the has to go towards the, the light, right? He said, yeah. He was playing cards at lunch with his friends because they did that every day. And I said, well, how do you tell which side has the emulsion on it, thinking they must be like a you know, punch card had a corner taken off. Mm-hmm. Now I'm in the dark, you know, feeling around now. I can't. He goes, you taste it. I'm like, you do what? He goes, you taste it. I'm like, doesn't that make you stupid? <laughs> and I got this laugh from the other side. It's like, okay, this isn't going away. So I boxed everything back up, you know, because put all the emulsion plates away. And I went back. I was like, you've got to be kidding. He went, no. After lunch, he came and He really did. He tasted it. Yeah, just the corner. And he could do it, because see, one, two, you got eight possible corners, right? Four corners, two yeah, sides. Yeah. He could do it in one. It took me seven.
0: There you go. There's my glorious... That's... <laughs> very I mean, shortly after, for well, very no, good
1: reasons, we went electronic,
0: but yeah. But it reminds me of, like, the uh, the ladies, I can't remember what they were called, but the there were these The women. Radium Girls. That's no, it? No, no,
1: this wasn't like that at all. Who would paint? No, them. no, this was that was really horrible. Yeah. But no, no, yeah. this wasn't like that at all.
0: But still the idea of putting something your tongue on something that Well is, I mean you didn't like it wasn't like recreational. No. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't like Mr Natural.
1: No, no. I probably yeah. shot I I probably shot less than fifty plates the whole time, so wow. it wasn't
0: so, but you were also at the time. You didn't you also work in the uh, supersonic wind tunnel? Were, were, were you there? No, I was.
1: I worked in a subsonic wind tunnel when I was in undergraduate school. Okay, and it was that was great. That was the really an engineering school. You don't you don't generally get a lot of practical experience, mm-hmm. and that was the one place I could really see all this classwork made real. Sure. And at the time, I had the advantage at the time I was skinny enough that I could fit through the turning vanes because they were really tight. You could just squeeze through there. So I got the job of all the junk that got blown back around to the fan on the air return. I I would squeeze back there with a a garbage bag. And my my glorious job was cleaning up all the model parts that got
0: back there. Like the guy who follows the elephants in the circus. It was better than that, but only slightly. Yeah. Yeah. Just marginally? Well, it smelled better. I saw something, um, the Purdue... Uh, one of the Purdue, Purdue web pages, and the way it's worded makes me think you may have had a hand in it. It says something about tired of secure employment, yeah, you decided was, to work in the automotive yeah. industry. I thought that's Mark. That's well, I didn't think anybody ever read that stuff, so I just wrote well, whatever yeah. I wanted, right? It's yeah, it's good to see. So who's you're the one, attention. I guess. I, well, there's got to be at least another one if there's, well, there's one, at least two statistically. People have read that, right? Yeah. It's a, yeah. So, yeah, so there was the, the Lear years, and in one of the uh, buildings, I think it was the, I forget the building numbers now, but there were display cases. And there was a small, I wouldn't really call it a guitar as much as I would call it something that looked a little bit like a cross between a balalaika and a something. And I remember it being Oh, on yeah, display. yeah, yeah, I made that. Did yeah. I make that?
1: Oh, no, I made it. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I made that for Judd. Yeah, well, I didn't make it for Judd. Judd has it. Judd was my boss, the guy who hired me into Lear. But I had, I don't remember why now, but I had a set of mandolin tuners that have, because there's eight tuners on a mandolin, eight Mm -hmm. strings on a mandolin. Mm -hmm. And I only was interested in making guitars, so I just made a guitar and doubled up the two highest-pitched strings. It sounded pretty cool. Huh. And I didn't have any idea what I was doing at the time. And I was... You know had two small children at home and so i was on a really tight budget yeah and so i probably got the tuners for christmas or something and what i was doing at the time was going to the lumber yard and trying to find stuff in the scrap bin for real cheap and Lear had gotten a bunch of pallets in that were made out of really nice sugar pine really clear stuff hmm. and i uh cut some of that stuff up and made a guitar out of it yeah that was they'd come in from i don't know mexico or someplace I don't now really... was
0: that the first guitar that you had built oh no when did this start this pathology um <laughs> let's see would have when been... did this particular sickness yeah first take hold <laughs> but
1: i feel much better now um <laughs> 90, 97, i think no no 1990 pretty much Wow. Yeah, I had gotten divorced, and there was nobody telling me not to do it anymore.
0: Well, see, that's one of the benefits of getting divorced. <laughs> yeah, well,
1: everyone will, yeah, this one, yeah, I guess you got to get that first marriage out of the way. Um, <laughs> I did. Yeah, well, I did. It, it wasn't, it was never great, but I thought, well, it, life sucks right now, but at least I can make guitars. So I bought a little table saw and put it in my garage, and I wanted to learn how to make guitars. It occurred to me that, people did this mm-hmm. you know i didn't know how but i think well it can't be that hard people do it and this is hard to imagine but this was before the internet and there were no books there was there's was no websites there was nowhere to learn this especially in dayton ohio at the time there was nobody right. around i could ask i had to do the, everything from scratch by myself and it was awful it wasn't good enough to be merely awful i mean i made every mistake you could make yeah and i didn't start doing it because i wanted a guitar i started because i wanted to know how guitars worked and that that makes you a very different builder than the the usual and like i didn't even know where to buy parts right and so i would go around to the few local music stores and they've always got a few parts behind the counter and they're usually pretty low quality and often they're pretty well it's actually not so bad now but at the time hmm. they were low quality and really overpriced but that's the only thing i knew to do so i did that and finally in one music store they had this catalog on the counter for a place called Stuart mcdonald guitar shop supply oh, yeah you know stumac yeah, everybody yeah. knows stumac oh, yeah. stumac loves me by the way <laughs> i have dropped many bucks there <laughs> and Well, I can't boost their catalog. That wouldn't be a good move. But it had an 800 number on the front. So I wrote it on my hand and went home, called them because that's what you had to do at that time. And a week or two later, this newsprint catalog showed up. So I remember sitting down and looking at this going, oh, okay, now this is what I was missing. And over the next two years, I rubbed the numbers off my credit card buying Mm -hmm. stuff from them. And I knew so little at the time. I was taking guitar lessons and I had a guitar that had twenty one frets on it, It was a Hmm. real cheap strat I had. Okay. Black strat. And I was trying to play a song that I never really did master, but you needed to go to twenty second fret and then like bend to the twenty third or twenty (laughs) fourth. And I'm like going down the next like, wait a minute. I'm out. I'm out. I said, What do you I looked at my teacher said, What's wrong here? He goes, Oh, you have a twenty one fret guitar. I'm like, What's that? And he goes, well, some fr- guitars have twenty-two frets, and this was the basement of a music store. So I went, wait here. <laughs> and actually, he walked upstairs with me. I handed him the guitar, and I was like, this isn't gonna do. Found this this other one. It's like, does it have twenty-two frets? It's a music store in Fairborn, Ohio, in nineteen ninety-one. There weren't that many choices, so wow. I've pretty much you know had two or three choices. I went, give me that one. Mm-hmm. They actually gave me more for that little Strat, strat on trade-in than. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. yeah then, then I paid for it. They actually, were, they had, was, had an intonation problem, too, and they couldn't set the intonation. I didn't even know what that meant. Mm-hmm. Wow. But I knew they'd, give me a, they, they'd take it on trade, and so I got this PV Telestrat thing, and that solved the 22 fret problem. <laughs> it did not solve the problem of me not being able to play very well, because <laughs> it turns out having more guitars does not make you a better player. Yeah, contrary to... <laughs> yeah, you might want to edit ready. that out. That's sacrilege.
0: <laughs> um, Do you remember what song it was? Uh, yes, yeah, No Alibis. Eric Clapton. You have the motivation. You have the energy. You have the idea that this thing you're going to create is going to be that thing you envision it to be. And I can tell you that like my experimentation with my first loudspeakers, they were better concepts than they were Oh yeah. Of course they were. Right. But that therein is part of the learning process. Yeah, this is good. You try it... things and you realize, well that didn't work. Yes. That kind of works. But this, yeah, not so much. And this is the best thing that I've been able to do. And why is that better than what I've been able to do so far?
1: Yeah, that sounds very familiar. When you want to become a luthier, which is like somebody who makes stringed instruments, the way you're supposed to do it, well, now you read a bunch of books and websites and things like that. But even then, what you're supposed to do is go to Stumac and buy some plans for some successful instrument, whatever it is you like. And they have very good plans go buy one of those and make five of those. At the end of those five, you'll know what you're doing. And I just refused. I knew I could do it, and I would not do it. I would read books on instructions of how to make this very conventional guitar, and I would read as far as I wanted to, but I would not ever follow anybody else's instructions. To this day, I have never made a guitar off a plan, not once, and I never will. I did not want to copy somebody else's work i wanted to do it by myself Hmm. and it worked about as well as you'd think (laughs) you know those first 10 or 15 i don't know where they are i hope they're in a landfill (laughs) if they're not in a landfill and i knew where they were i'd put them there i just they were just awful but the point wasn't to have a guitar the point was to figure out how to make one my way why did I do that? I have no idea. I don't mm-hmm. know, But I'm still like that. I mm-hmm. don't want to follow anybody else's instructions for mm-hmm. anything. Who would have guessed the military was going to be a bad idea? Yeah, it was funny. I wound up working for the Air Force after that. I right. feel like I kind of owed him something. <laughs> um, the The funny thing about working at the base is that I found out that their training budget was just bottomless. Yeah. And I had no thought of going to graduate school. I got out of engineering school once and went, man, that was awful. I'm not doing that again. Is that right? I thought because
0: oh, yeah. I had always pictured you as someone who was absolutely on this path of edification. And
1: Oh, you know. no. I came out of engineering school thinking I was just stupid. Wow. Hmm. I didn't know any math. I couldn't figure out half of what they were trying to teach me. I was in... And what happened was I'd been at the base for, I don't know, a month, and this guy named Tom, uh, who was just a great guy, was assigned as my, I don't know, mentor, I guess you'd call it now, but to show me the ropes, he was like every other PhD there, he was teaching classes at night, and he walked into my little cubicle and threw one of these, like, nine-part duplicate government forms on my desk, the DD-1556 is what it was called. He had to like, drilling for oil to get down to that last, you know, he had a really <laughs> sharp pen, and you were trying to get down to that last copy, and he just threw it, and he smiles at me, he goes, fill this out, you're going to graduate school, and I just went, uh, what? And he was teaching classes at the University of Dayton. There were two uh-huh. local schools. They're yep. both pretty good. University of Dayton's probably the, at least at the time, was the better of the two. Are of those them.
0: the Dayton Flyers? But
1: nothing else. Yes, yeah, yep. the Dayton Flyers. Yep. And here's the thing: the class I did the worst in in undergraduate school was automatic control theory because I had no idea what a signal was. <laughs> And nobody thought it was important enough to tell me that it's just a voltage that means something. Exactly. That would have been useful information.
0: That could be Andy, right?
1: Well, he probably told me and I wasn't listening was Mm, probably what happened.
0: This is analogous to this. That would have been great. Right.
1: But I could do Bode plots and Nyquist plots, but I still had no idea what I was doing. So what do you think the first class in graduate school was? It's got to be signal processing. It was controls. That was Tom's class. And I managed to stumble through it somehow. We were sitting at the lunch table one day and i got a b in this class and i think which in graduate school is kind of an ab grade so that was i mean that wasn't great but i didn't fail it and i finally just looked and was like how did i pass this how did mm. you grade this he went top half of the class got an a the bottom half got a b and i went okay <laughs> i bet i knew who's the bottom <laughs> and so that was, and he could have ended my graduate career at that moment he could have and i if, if i had gotten a bad a worse grade in that class i never would have tried it again sure and he elected not to do that he saw some reason to let mm. me you know, to help me along. Bless this man. Right. Yeah. There there are those instructors
0: yeah. who make a difference, even yeah. if we're not aware of the fact that they're making that difference. At and the I don't time. know if he
1: even knew he was doing it. I don't know if he thought about it that way or not. But for whatever reason, yeah. I managed to bumble through that. And finally, well, I guess they will keep paying for classes. I guess I'll keep taking them while I was working during the day and going to school at night and don't ever do that by the way bad times so and i finally they i finally took enough classes they finally kept giving me degrees by the way when i got the phd it was august 4th and the reason i remember that is it's my mom's birthday oh wow mm-hmm. always graduate on your
0: mom's birthday yeah you can do no wrong oh my god yeah <laughs> i remember it cuz she was i mean did she throw you a parade by any chance did she well she's not that kind of of, of
1: lovely lovely woman but not that kind of mm-hmm. lovely But she was walking around, just the the expression I used to hear from the old folks is bursting her buttons in in pride. I thought, walking around, I was like, man, this is the best Mother's Day present I've ever come up with. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, my God. What am I going to do next
0: year (laughs) because I can't do this again? (laughs) My son, the doctor. Oh, yeah. She was. In a different sort of way. Yeah. So she. uh, That's awesome, though. But it is funny how certain things converge. Mm -hmm. I was reminiscing about the fact that when you left and you went on to Bosch, you probably um, don't remember. it. I tried to poach you
1: out of Lear. You I got, did. I got my boss to agree to let me interview, and it was—he didn't really want to do it because he was all hung up. Well, we, I only want to hire people with PhDs because that was the group at the <laughs> right. time. Like, look, man, you got this is. That was a, Peter, wasn't a, it? That's Peter. Peter Blashka, Yeah. I knew it. And so he finally, kind of grumbled and. And let me do it. And it's like, okay, I don't think this is going anywhere, right. but let's try it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you interview, you get to take the guy out to lunch. So we, I took you out for sushi, and it's like, we, how much can I put on the credit card? <laughs> and I heard at the end, it's was like, oh, this was way too much. <laughs> I think I tried to get you to take it with you. I don't, I don't remember what happened to it. I do
0: remember that. That's right. I had totally forgotten that.
1: I wanted to think, oh, if I work for Bosch,
0: unlimited sushi, okay. Right. Yeah, that's a perk. I'd eat sushi every day if I could.
1: But well, I, I, that was the, the one, one time I ever got Bosch to put yeah. the bill
0: for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not that's not cheap. But yeah. well, Bosch was a really good company. Yeah,
1: it was it was very well run because they everything was internally funded. They didn't make a lot of the crazy decisions you do you make when you decide that the real purpose of your company is to curate the stock price. Right. They didn't do that. Right. And so. Like I said, what I found out is I'm just not a company man. Yeah. They, they were very, very good to me.
0: So was mm-hmm. it in the Bosch years, or maybe it was before? I'm trying to place this. I recall you doing some modal work on violins. Is that correct? Were you? Doing? Yeah, I did
1: some of that when I was still working for the Air Force. There's a lady named Carlene Hutchins who was, who was trying to uh, explore the, the science behind violins. I did some testing for her at one point. It's a long time ago, though. I was when I was still at the Air Force Base, which which wasn't much. I mean, I had a couple of instruments.
0: So, would this be were these simple tests with a, a a hammer and a let's say a uniaxial accelerometer? What were you doing? No, I was using a, a scanning
1: laser vibrometer. Okay. And a, a video. was it's not really holography. Uh, electronic speckle pattern interferometer. It's kind okay. of people call it like video holography. It's not right. really holography,
0: but it's close enough okay so was it almost then so it wasn't there wasn't a forcing function Mm -hmm. like from a hammer no this is actual like an operating deflection shape no
1: no we were using a speaker
0: oh you were that was the that was the excitation yeah
1: when you can measure deformations that are measured in nanometers right any amount of noise was good enough right 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 i do have one question though for mark um you said when you were first building guitars were you building solid body electrics or acoustics I built the very first one or two were solid body electrics. Okay. And I decided at the time really, I got to be careful how I say this because there's some very very good builders who I re- admire quite a lot, hmm. who make solid body electric guitars. So it's not I don't mean that. It's just for me I wanted something that had a little more uh, complicated physics behind it. I liked sure I liked, I liked the puzzle. I liked okay. Trying to figure it out. So. Through a couple, I mean, a bunch of NSF projects and classes and things like that, I've helped students build just hundreds and hundreds of solid-body electric guitars. So I've I've had the experience. I can do it, but on my own, mm-hmm. I, the only time I'll ever make one is if somebody else wants one and I agree to do it. But I will never make one for myself. Just. Just because that's not the direction I want my craft to take. Sure. Okay. Cool. And it's not, like I say, no, no shade on anybody who does that. It's there's some very fine builders out there that that's, their, that's yeah. where they want their craft to go. Hmm.
0: The more complicated it is, the more I like it. <laughs> I'm saying this, and it's unfortunately probably from a point of ignorance, but one is definitely more complicated than the other I think when I think about an acoustic guitar, I think about all the variables that come to mind, and then I realize there are a whole bunch of variables that don't come to mind because I don 't know them well the physics of electric guitars is pretty complicated if you get
1: into the electromagnetics, mm-hmm. but from a structural mechanics point of view they 're pretty simple mm-hmm. and because you can do anything you want with circuitry, you can make them sound however you want true, which is great mm-hmm. but
0: they are an artistic instrument. after Quite. all.
1: yeah, exactly. Hmm. But when you're working with acoustic guitars, if you want to know what it's going to sound like, you have to finish it. There's no, hmm. you'd, you'd have to be beyond good to know what it's going to sound like before you're done. Now, there's a few guys who can do it, but I'm, wow, I'm always a little surprised when I finish one oh. up and put strings on it. It's always, hmm. there's always that that you know the lights kind of come on and you get to hear this thing come alive. Yeah, wow. When you want to change the sound, oh, it's hard to do. You're shaving braces and, like, that little one you just tried, and I guess we'll hear her in a few minutes. Yeah, yeah. One of the things is that it, because I'm an engineer, I tend to overbuild my instruments a little bit. Hmm. Well, a lot. (laughs) Um, I'm getting better (laughs) with some therapy. Um, And so that one was originally kind of overbraced. Okay. The braces were too heavy. Hmm. And so I got it back. From nashville a week or two ago and i went into the sound hole with you know an exacto knife and a razor blade and a bunch of sandpaper and stuff i started sanding away at the wow. the um the the two primary braces in it are a little smaller than they were and it's got a little more low end than it had oh wow okay but that's what the game you're playing yeah and the one the big one that uh, you just played yeah. i looked at that when it was going together and i thought this thing's going to fold like a coat hanger. There's no way there's enough bracing in there to hold this. And there was. It's, it's held up just fine, and it sounds really good. So that was my lesson that I took from that instrument. Mm. Wow. But it's complicated, and there's no way to analyze it. I mean, there are people out there making finite element models of electric, of acoustic guitars. There's not very many of them. Mm-hmm. And there's, I found one or two people who are making multi-physics models, so they're ma- doing the finite element model of the instrument, the, you know, the structurals modeling the structure, and then also the sound field around it. Mm -hmm. So as mathematically they watch the structure move, Mm -hmm. they're also calculating what the sound field looks like. So they can calculate it all, but even then, what do you do? There's no, okay, fine, you can do it. Now what? And the answer is, well, we don't know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there's this giant, I don't know, void, disconnect between analysis and practice,
0: Mm -hmm. and that's, that's the world I live in. I asked Dr. French to summarize differences in guitars because it's a whole world out there, good, bad, and in between. In a nutshell, here's how he summarized it. First, the difference between a bad guitar and an adequate one is huge. Next, the difference between an adequate one and a good one is smaller, but it's still a substantial difference. Moving on, the difference between a good one and an excellent one is smaller still. Lastly, the difference between an excellent one and one that is legendary is tiny, maybe on the order of 10%. The thing is, price isn't a great proxy for sound quality. However, as guitars get more expensive, you're paying for these smaller and smaller improvements. And at the very top of this heap, the difference between a $5,000 guitar And a $50,000 guitar is pretty much on the order of 10%. All right, so with that little summary now behind us, let's get back to the conversation. You're going to hear more about what it takes to build a truly great-sounding guitar. Let's go. The most complicated,
1: well, one of the most difficult builds I ever did is my son asked me for an archtop Classical. Which is really a, a freak instrument, I mean it's it's very, very rare that you ever see one hmm. and lots of good builders will go their entire crew without ever making one there's there's very little market for them, but that's what he wanted, wow, so is it like an arched top and then with nylon strings or? yeah okay, yeah, and hmm. it's it was a little overbuilt, but um wow, I, I built it, and it had this I don't know how you describe this sound, but kind of this low, dark sound. Well, Brian likes to play something called Viking death metal, which is, I've listened to it, it's worse than it sounds. (laughs) (laughs) And it sounds pretty bad. (laughs) And his style of music, he likes to tune low, you know, drop C, drop D tuning. And in those lower tunings, this thing sounds great. And I can show you a picture of it. Here's, Here's the best part. He was selling something on reverb. I don't know what it was, an amplifier or something. Guy came over to his his little condo in in Boston, saw that guitar, played it, and offered him what I thought was an unreasonable amount of money on the spot for that guitar. (laughs) And he, my son's telling me this on the phone. I said, "Well, you sold it, didn't you?" He goes, "No, you made this for me." And I'm like, "I'll make you another one." (laughs) (laughs) And then I thought for a second. I thought that is absolutely the nicest thing that's happened to me in a long time. Yeah, that's Uh, that's great. It gets better. He is friends with somebody who is a, at least part of the time, working musician in, in Boston and has a day job, and I can't remember what it was, but um, was really into music at a, and, and a performer at a pretty high level and can't really afford instruments. With me? Mm-hmm. He gave it to her.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: I thought, he told me that. I was like, that... That's amazing. That is wonderful. He turned down money for it because he, it meant something to him. And then he gave it to this other person. Wow. I was, I mean, I get, a, I get a little misty telling you about yeah. it. Just, I, was, I tell people it's not my job to be objective about my children. I think they're just the bee's knees.
0: Of course. And
1: yeah. I'm immensely proud of both of them. And this is one of the reasons Yeah. yeah. that he wow. thought to do that. I was just, that was great.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah. You know, that gesture, I totally, you should be proud of that. Oh, I mean, yeah. I think that is I, phenomenal. I told you know,
1: there was no finer fate for that instrument.
0: Oh, <laughs> completely. Yeah. And this young lady will play it a lot. I hope completely. she wears it out. I want to talk about something real quick, just, and then I want to bring the guitars out. But let's talk a little bit about the point of doing, let's say, a rudimentary FRF when you're looking uh, at a guitar. Mm-hmm. Can you explain for the listeners what the point of doing something like this might be, let's say, as a differentiator, but also kind of explain what it is we're talking about when we say FRF? No. Okay. No, yes, We'll just course. move on then. <laughs> no, <yeah. laughs> yes.
1: Um, this is, we're on, on thin ice here, especially since electronics has gotten so cheap and software is so available. It's not that hard to do frequency response functions. Mm-hmm. Tap test is what we're talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. And I've done a gazillion of them. And the problem is I don't know of any robust way to correlate the results of a tap test with sound quality. Right. And it doesn't stop people from trying. It certainly didn't stop me. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you go to trade shows and things, there's always some guy sitting there. It's always a guy for some reason (laughs) who's got a, 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 a fixture with a guitar top or something in it. And, you know, everybody's acting in good faith. He doesn't think he's he's saying anything incorrect. I mean, everybody's everybody's on the right side of that. And they'll be sitting here, you know, doing FRFs and say, see this peak, see this peak. That's why this sounds good. You know, is it? Eh, maybe. But, all right, show me the statistically robust results. Show me the results from dozens of instruments and dozens of listeners. And show me that you've got, you know, double blind. You've done all the things you right. can do. And I know of no data set like yeah. that if, if there is i am not aware of it and I, I did this at Bosch actually you were you obviously you're still a lear, but we had a brand new lab with you know these just beautiful i a c hemi-anechoic chambers and binaural heads and scanning laser fibers the yeah. there was it was easy to pull together a test with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment. It, it happened every day, mm-hmm. you know, because that was our job, you know, we were we had it for good reason. Now I own two accelerometers, and they were used. Mm-hmm. I bought them used because yep. I have, in terms of money, I have no money. Yeah, um, you're like me. I have one. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, <laughs> and I've that's won. fine. You know, when I yeah. went into guitars at Purdue, I knew this was my fate. Mm-hmm. If I don't like yeah. it, I know where the door is. Yeah. Um, so. I brought in a Taylor prototype that... It was a bracing prototype. It was a Taylor 710. And what they had done is they wanted to know where the bracing was. And so they put their their bracing template on the front of the guitar and they outlined it in Sharpie and then colored the braces in with a yellow Sharpie or a highlighter or something. It's yellow. And then just finished it like any normal guitar. You would think the gods from Olympus had put that guitar on the planet because kids see this... Oh my God, is that a special one? Well, sort of, you know. Um, I guess Taylor was offered just stupid amounts of money for that guitar. It's like we colored in the braces with the Sharpie. What are you talking about? (laughs) So I have this now, and it's, I have to leave it. It's got a Purdue access, you know, serial number on it. So it's going to be there forever. And so I took that guitar back before I was at Purdue and I shot lasers at it and I recorded it with binaural heads and everything else. And Mm -hmm. I've still got the data. I'll give Mm -hmm. you the data if you want it.
0: I'm very curious. I'll
1: send it all to you, and I look at it, I've done spectrograms and all this other yeah, stuff. Yeah, It's a great sounding guitar. Can I look at any of those plots and explain why? No.: No. Wow. No. If you want me to bring that guitar here with you so you can test it, I'll bring it. Yeah,
0: I still have it.: You know it, it's funny because you you know we were talking we touched a little bit on modal, et cetera, but I was thinking, your point is well taken. I mean, to me, were I building guitars? I think the utility that I would see in doing FRFs would simply be in a QC kind of thing. Yes. I,
1: I did that. I work with several guitar companies. In the acoustic guitar world, Taylor is—I is, love those guys because they're so innovative. They had a big part in bringing CNC's machinery into the guitar industry. So oh, when you go wow. to a Taylor, the Taylor factory now in El Cajon— It's almost hard to tell. It's a guitar factory, you know. They're manufacturing something, and there's just row after row after row of CNCs. You know, they spray everything with industrial robots. They buff it with industrial robots. There is really low build variation there, and you know, one of the things you learn in engineering school is build variation and build quality are inversely related. Which, if you want, you got more of one, you got less of the other one. True. And that's just it. If you don't like it, go find another universe to live in. Yep. Um, And so early on, this has been probably 15, 18 years ago, I brought my little data acquisition system and I actually used a non-contact sensor. I had this little uh, Keyence laser sensor I was using at the time. Oh, yeah, I remember those. The poor man's vibrometer is what it was. Yeah, And just sat on basically the end of their assembly line. It's not really an assembly line, but that's functionally what it was. And just every guitar body, every guitar car that came down the line, we tap tested it. And so I have data from dozens and dozens of guitars over a couple of days. And I looked at their variation based on the first couple of resonant frequencies. And it was, you know, the standard deviation was 2%, 1%. In fact, if I sorted it by backwood, now, the woods you make the back and the sides out of doesn't really matter that much. It matters some, but... It matters less than the people who are trying to sell you the wood think it does. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some very famous experiments showing that it really is a a secondary or tertiary kind of effect. Mm -hmm. Um, But if I sorted by the the species of wood they use for the back, it was even lower than that. Mm -hmm. You know, their build variation is crazy low. And now, all these years later, they can point to their guitar and say, right here, it comes off the finishing line. The finish right there is 9 mils. Down here it's 11, there it's 9 again. We're trying to make it 9 everywhere. And they will, they they did. They have that level of control over what they do. Wow. So it's companies like that that are making the most progress because they can, their process is so tight, they can make small changes in the design and it doesn't get lost in the noise of all the build variation. Some of the more traditional builders who are quickly going to CNC a couple of the, the old line companies had just enormous build variation mm-hmm. yeah. um, and so you I was telling him earlier we would go down a line of nominally identical guitars and they don't sound alike mm-hmm. you go down the row of a, 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 go to a music store and find a bunch of tailors that are all the same model they're all going to sound alike yeah. now you've got to well, decide whether that's good or bad I right. think it's good I like the tailor sound so for me it's good hmm. um, in one case can I tell you this? Yeah, I can tell you this. In one case, I saw a company purposely introduce some build variation in a very controlled, very well understood way, the way you'd want to. And the reasoning was when you go down the line of our guitars, we want them all to be just a little different, but only in this one way and only in a way that we understand so that no no matter who you are, you will find one to fall in love with. Hmm. That's the That's the only time I've ever seen build variation used as a positive, and I thought it was very shrewd. I thought it was a really good idea. That's clever. Yeah. Hmm.
0: You know, we both worked in automotive. We both know what volume production means, Mm -hmm. right? You know, even in any way you slice it, somebody who's making millions of widgets, at the end of the day, if your revenue depends on those all being sufficiently consistent. Yes. You know, and the key word there being Mm -hmm. sufficiently then process control is absolutely king. It is absolutely king.
1: Yes. Well, there's a problem in the guitar industry, though, in that a lot of companies are very bound to their tradition and their heritage. And even though they want to modernize and they want to make improvements in their instruments, sometimes their customers won't let them. Hmm. There are, I can give you plenty of instances of... We've got this design flaw in this instrument. It has been here since the beginning. We know exactly what it is, and we know exactly how to fix it. But if we do, our customers are going to revolt. Right. It wow. happens all the time. Right. You know, there's the, I don't know what the industry term is, but basically the authenticity police. You know, one of the, one of the iconic guitars is a 59 Les Paul, and there are some people out there, good people who know what they want. They want a 59 less Paul and mm-hmm. God help you if you try to sell them anything else. But this <laughs> is better. I know it's not a 69 le- or 59 less. Paul. It's not Les what Paul. I want. Exactly. It's not what I want. Well, they're not wrong. Right. They have every reason to, to want that. Right. You, know, you want to be in this business?
0: Do you, want, do you want them as customers or not? Exactly. All taste is subjective and, and fundamentally people like what they like. What if you took a 63 Vet, an, an
1: original... And you rip the engine out of it, and you put in like a BMW straight six, and you know a brand new like nine-speed Getrag transmission. That would be sacrilege, right? Of course It'd it be would. a lot better car, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's not the point. And so, what a lot of companies will do is they'll have different model lines or different brands, and they'll say, well, this is the one where we're we're, we're faithful to tradition, and here's the the brand or the model line where we're exploring. You know,
0: we're doing other things. Hmm. I wondered if you might indulge me a little bit here and discuss the main factors as you see them, based on your knowledge of testing, of listening, and of building. In an acoustic guitar, the main factors that contribute the most to the overall timbre of the instrument, can is that something that we can even list? Is this... There's no point in discussing this or?
1: No. I mean, when we started to set this up, this was the question I was afraid of. This is the one, you know, f- five hours driving over here. This is the one I was afraid you
0: were going to ask. Well, then I've done my job. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm,
1: I'm, I'm freaking out. No, it's, yeah, yes, there is. The short answer is yes. And it's not, there's nothing magic. I mean, the the answer I'm going to give you is not going to satisfy very many people, but this is the answer as as it is for now. Um, there's a fairly short list of what uh, luthiers worry about, the good ones anyway, and there's a lot of very good ones out there. You have to start with a good design. Um, it doesn't matter who you are. If you've got a, a, a stinker of a design, it's you're dead in the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's a good design? Well, for an acoustic guitar, a large majority of the sound is due to the shape of the body, And the mechanics of the top, you know, the piece of wood you make the top out of and the way you brace it. So that's one element. And where you brace it, I'm assuming? Where, the geometry of the bracing, yeah. Yeah, and um, quality of construction matters a lot. If you, the joints don't fit, if there's, things are misaligned, things like that, that's going to hurt sound quality. Can I give you an example of the the craziest example I know of? Yeah, I, I, I said in my, I'm basically self-taught. I took two master classes. Um, one of them was taught by a guy named Paco Chirobo in from Spain. It was taught and it was hosted in Colorado. And Paco insisted that there, our glue joints should fit. He called it like glass on glass. Hmm. I'm like, okay, you know, I, I went into that class thinking I had some building chops. About three or four days in, I'm thinking, you know, I'm not so sure now. Mm. <laughs> um, in the face, I mean, in the builder's world, I'm probably a six or a seven. Paco is probably a nine, and mm. it's probably a nonlinear scale. So, right. Um, and I finally <laughs> it's said logarithmic, pa- right? Yeah. And he said, your glue layer, you should be able, if you write on the wood with a pencil, when you put the glue on, you should be able to read that writing through the wet glue. And I, yeah, I. Wow. You're giving me that look. I gave Paco that look. And I finally said, Paco, how much glue do you use? How much In your shop in Spain, how much glue do you go through in a year? You know, in Taylor, they buy it in five-gallon buckets. Mm-hmm. And for all I know, they might buy it in barrels. God knows they go through enough. Or a and they, tanker. Yeah, and they don't <laughs> use extravagant amounts of glue. They're pretty spare, and it's very clean work.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Paco told me, and I don't know how many guitars he builds a year, a dozen, 18, somewhere in that neighborhood, because it's all, it's all hand stuff. Sure. Um, he said in Jan- the beginning of January, he buys one 16-ounce bottle of tight bond glue. And even in Spain, he's buying 16-ounce bottles. I don't know how that works. But he said at the end of December, he throws away whatever's left, and then he buys one more bottle. This guy goes through less wow. than a bottle a year. <laughs> and
0: To uh, build a dozen or so guitars. Yeah,
1: and so when we were putting glue on these guitars, I was freaking out. Because you know, normally you look for squeeze-out, you know? Mm-hmm. And... There wasn't any. I said, is this going to hold together? He goes, yes, it will. He was very very beatific. <laughs> and he said, you are not going to sleep tonight, are you? And I said, no. He goes, it's going to be fine. <laughs> I had made a small mistake. And he said, this is going to be fine. And he looked at me and said, but you aren't going to sleep tonight if we don't fix this. So we chiseled a brace back out. And while everybody else was having lunch, we re-glued it properly because wow. I had made a mistake. And he smiled at me and goes, now you can sleep. Paco's just the best. <laughs> So, you yeah, go to chorobo.com, C H O R O B O, and you can.com, and you can, .com and you you can see com Can you hear that, work. folks? Yeah. yeah. It turns out that's not really his name. I tried to send him a copy of my book, and it kept coming back. Actually, uh-huh. two or three tries, and I finally I was like, what's going on? He goes, well, Paco Chorobo isn't my real name. Like, what are you, in the witness protection program? <laughs> no, Paco is, his mother didn't name him Paco, he named him Francisco. And it's like, ah. Uh-huh. So, anyway, um, yeah. So, getting back to it, the quality of the build is good. The materials, it this is a, a, a tough one if you're beginning my sense is you probably ought to use the best materials you can reasonably afford now don't go whole hog here you don't need to put yourself in financial straits but buy the best materials you can reasonably afford hmm. and there's lots of conflicting opinions about this if you're when you get good you can build a good guitar out of anything hmm. um, I, I I learned something from a series of videos by a guy named Bob Benedetto, who's like, oh, yeah, very, very good arch top builder. I mean, there's no one best, but he's certainly the peer of the best and has just these legendary hand skills. In the middle of the video, somebody off screen said, I noticed you're using with master grade spruce. And yeah, you know, when you're Bob and you're making instruments that good you know, the very best is just barely good enough. Mm. And he said, do you have to use master grade wood? And Bob just smiled and said, I don't, (laughs) but you do. (laughs) And that's the answer. So use, use the best materials you can reasonably afford. Mm. And, uh, glue joints matter. You can't have the glue joints have to be tight. Now, there's a lot of debate about glue. Probably it doesn't matter too much as long as you're using some. Use either Tight Bond 1, don't use Tight Bond 2 or Tight Bond 3 because they have higher damping. There's actually a. Or wood glue. I mean, I use Tight Bond because that's what I'm familiar with. There are other good wood glues, and I'm not, I'm not here plumping for Tight Bond, <laughs> although I love their product. There's a, uh, a brand called Tight Bond Extend that takes longer to cure but has lower damping. If you can find it, you have to order it. Use that. LMI sells their own branded wood glue. I don't know what it is. It's it may be Tight Bond Extend. That stuff's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't over don't put too much finish on it. If because when you, uh, 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 Tim Shaw from Fender talks about the tsunami of plastic that cheap guitars have on them, and it is. I mean, uh, really cheap guitars, especially the solid bodies, have just this foot thick layer of polyester on them and they buff them to within an inch of their life because that's what people want to see. Mm. Well, on a solid body, you can probably get away with it, but you can't on an acoustic. You can put the tsunami of plastic everywhere but the fretboard. Go as light as you reasonably can on that. That Mm. will help. And don't be afraid to tap wood tops and to get one that you like. That'll help too. And Mm. then practice. Good luthiers make good guitars.
0: Mm. It's like getting to Carnegie Hall. Got to practice, yeah. Oh,
1: and uh, the Luthery subreddit on uh, Reddit? Yeah. Consider that creative fiction. Because about every third post is some guy posting something that looks like it came out of Fender's Custom Shop and going, this is my first guitar. Mm -hmm. No, it isn't. (laughs) Or I made this guitar, and you realize they bought the neck. The neck is by far the hardest part to make on an electric. Is that right? By far. (laughs) By far the hardest part. It's the one my students always choke on. And so the bodies for especially for a fender style guitar that has that slab body yep. that you pull to, yep. that's actually pretty easy. And so
0: now
1: yeah. it depends on what they mean. If they're careful, say, well I bought the neck but built the body and this is my first guitar. Well, good for you. That's that's wonderful. Sure. It only becomes a problem when they try to make it sound like they scratch built it and they bought the neck. That's sure. that's not truth in advertising. Yeah.
0: yeah. That's not fair. And
1: even then that's probably not what they mean, but don't read that the wrong way. Right. And understand that people who are going for points on Reddit, maybe showing you their 20th guitar and saying it's their first. I mean, I don't know who that would be, but it probably happens. So mm. don't learn what you can off of, off of going on the web, but don't get too invested in what yeah. people post.
0: Yeah. We're going to hear a demonstration of two guitars brought here today by Mark, played by Mike. And what we're going to try and do is a simple experiment. Mike's going to play a tune In the same manner, as it were, just so we can get an idea of the differences in the timbre between the two guitars. Yeah,
1: these are two very different designs. So they, oh, yeah, all other things, things, yeah, all other things being equal, they really will sound quite different. Mm -hmm. I I think a guitar that isn't being played is like a book that isn't being read. There you go. Because, you know, somebody will get one of my guitars and like, Well, I'll take really good care of it. I was like, Well, do, play it to pieces play it until when it's just a smoking ruin i'll make you another one once once
0: it's just dead hang it on the wall so of the two guitars apparently i'm not a collector no (laughs) (laughs) of the the two guitars that you brought and the one that's uh currently with mike tell us a little bit about this guitar and its construction if you wouldn't mind sure um it's made out of plutonium and unicorns
1: (laughs) now this is a uh a guitar I made in a master class taught by uh, Charles Fox. And he's he's mm-hmm. an extremely accomplished builder and actually kind of a natural teacher too. It was a really good class. Um, but the design is, is pretty uh, conventional. Now, it's got some neat features in it that are transparent to the player that Charles put in it. Um, but it's basically patterned after, like, a Martin OM. Mm-hmm. When you think of a of a acoustic guitar there's really only two most people think of there's the big boxy one it's a dreadnought is the name of it like a martin d28 or something like that and the model numbers always have a d in them for dreadnought and the other one is a martin it's either an om or triple o they're almost the same design and om means orchestra model and the triple o is because of the weird naming convention that martin used he started out and i forgot what numbers he started with but as the instruments got bigger rather than going to bigger numbers he went to smaller numbers so when he finally got to a model o you know it was a three two one o well where do you go after that you can tell he wasn't an engineer because he had gone to negative numbers or (laughs) complex maybe (laughs) the martin 2i um he went to a double o and then a triple o and there actually is a four o it's this big jumbo they don't they make custom shop makes them and they're, they don't, they're not in production most of the time, but it's just a beast. Well, this one is pretty much an OM. It's actually maybe a little bigger. The body style is called Grand Concert, but it's, it's basically an OM. And it's, uh, people can't see it, but it's the back and sides are East Indian rosewood, which is the sustainable kind of rosewood. That's Everything is sustainably harvested. It's all legally brought in through the CITES treaty. The top is quarter sawn sitka spruce the neck is honduran mahogany with an ebony fretboard and an ebony headplate and an ebony bridge the nut and saddle or bone and then the bracing on the inside is sitka spruce the kerfing I think he used he had us using was it cedar or redwood I forgot which was a little unusual but it worked really really well and then the um the rosette you see there is mother of pearl mm. and then I finished it with true oil which is gunstock oil It's an old-fashioned, you know, back when people, before plastics and stuff, people used that for gun stocks. And, you know, some guy out riding the range had his, you know, rifle in his scabbard. This thing's got just beat to hell. So it's a, True Oil holds up really well. It it feels really good. And if there's ever a problem, you just rub some more on it. Mm. My finishing kit at home is an old T-shirt and a bottle of oil. (laughs) <laughs> At school, I have a spray booth and all this other stuff. At home, I've got a T-shirt and a bottle of oil. It's great. <laughs> so I made that over the course of 11 days with Charles, where he just absolutely worked us into the ground. <laughs> wow. Hmm.
0: And, uh, yeah, it, it turned out really, really well. Hmm. Yeah, wow. Why don't we hear a little bit of said musical instrument? Mike, get, get ready. ready. Yeah. Take it away whenever. All right.
1: So nice to hear somebody do this. Because I, I mean, I can't play like this. To watch somebody else. Bring <laughs> I know that I can't. It, well, to watch somebody else bring it to life like that—that's just wonderful. Yeah, that's a beautiful guitar. Why
0: don't we? Why don't we now do a quick comparison to the other guitar? And I'll go and grab that. I'll take this one. And why don't you uh, tell us uh, a little bit about that guitar while I'm fetching?
1: Okay. That one. Okay. The other one is all my design, and it's got a bunch of features in it that are unique to me i think the first is that i figured out a way to write an equation describe the body shape Mm -hmm. um if you're into the mathematics i had to do a a polar rectangular transform to get it to work and it's a so if you go into polar everything works fine and it's a rational polynomial it doesn't matter anyway um (laughs) i got the dimensions out of bob benedetto's book and his arch tops are just huge some of them Mm-hmm. That you look at body length a lot. Yeah. And so a 21-inch body length, that's just a beast. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of guitar. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what was in his book. So I kind of traced it out on a piece of paper and got some coordinates, cleaned it up a little bit, and then I used that shape. And I've got that stored now in, in code. And so whenever I need an instrument, I just take that and I scale the, the width and the length to whatever I want. So I've gone everything from super jumbo down to ukulele with that same shape. Hmm. And so this one has the body length and lower bout width of a Martin OM, even though it doesn't have the right shape. Hmm. Um, I'm using a much shorter scale length. This is a The other one you played was 25 and a half inch, which is kind of the Fender scale, I guess. Mm-hmm. This is 24. And the reason I did this, partly because I like having one small enough to carry around. But the other one is the Guitar Lab is getting enough smaller students as i attract larger groups of students you can't give some of these people one of these big instruments it's just too much you know yeah. the shortest student i've had in there so far was four foot eleven well like you can't hand them a Martin o. i mean, it's just too big and it's yeah. not their fault it's nothing's wrong it's the guitar that's wrong mm-hmm. so this one is is much more universal there's one more feature in it that's a, that's probably not too obvious um if you run the math Guitars make the wrong frequency almost everywhere, Hmm. Um, but it's usually not too bad. That's why we have movable saddles and intonated saddles and stuff. But every guitar you've ever listened to makes frequency errors. In fact, if you're down playing D chords and things, there's always that little bit of dissonance down there. Hmm. That's the physics working against you. So I figured out how to move uh, the first couple of frets a little bit and then move the nut and intonated each string. So it doesn't have, it, it should, the intonation should be pretty good up and down the neck. Hmm. I'm not the first person to think of that, but it's, this is my take on it. No, it's got a bolt on neck. that's the bolts go through the front. And this one has, um, I put Cluson uh, Supreme tuners on it. So those are 18 to one tuners. It should, hmm. especially when the necks get shorter, you need higher gear ratios. Oh, hmm. interesting.
0: So, what did you think of that? Two very different guitars, right? Did you have a preference for one over the other? Probably. Well, that does it for this episode of Tales from the Subterranean Playground. I'm your host, Mark Allen Jay. I hope you tune in to the next episode because we're going to continue this discussion, but we're going to shine a little bit more light on Michael Harrington in that episode in dealing with pedal steel guitar. It was a nice, lively discussion between the three of us, but in particular between Michael and Dr. French. I could see the wheels turning in his head as he was watching Mike play and explain how the instrument works. But for now, it's time to pull the faders down and say goodbye. Thanks for listening in. Peace. Tales from the Subterranean Playground was produced and brought to you by Immersify Recording Services, LLC.